Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. My name is Tudor Alexander, and this is the Dance of Life podcast. Welcoming you to the fifth episode in this series. It's the Once Saved, Always Saved series. This week, we're talking about eternal security and free will. So it's a pretty hot topic, I guess. Um, we're going to be talking about all kinds of really interesting things with free will. What is free will? How does it really work? You know, this is such a big topic and pretty controversial within Christianity because on one side you have the camp that talks about predestination, which we opened up last week. So if you're, if this is the first time you're watching this video or episode, listening to it podcast, I highly recommend you go and listen to the previous ones, at least the one from last week talking about predestination because the next few, so last week, this week, and next week, we're talking about this whole idea of predestination. Next week is going to be even even hotter topic. We're going to talk about evil and predestining evil. So this week I wanted to focus on free will. I thought I was going to do both of them last week with God predestining things and, you know, free will and all the stuff that I had for free will, but <laughs> it's just too much content. So, you know, these things are on the longer end because ultimately there's just so much to talk about with these topics, right? And so free will is, it's a heavy topic, right? Are we free? What is the nature of our experience here? How do we reconcile God's sovereignty, which we read throughout scripture and our experience of, you know, making choices, going from one thing to another? How do we reconcile those two? And and that's a very, to me, it's a fascinating topic. And I hope to encourage you through today's episode um, and also educate you and inspire you that even though if free will is not what we thought it was, that's actually a good thing. So that's my goal today. But we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. Last week, we talked about Old Testament attitudes towards, you know, things like predestination and working salvation into your own hands, like Moses, David, um, Saul. There's a lot of biblical examples where it was seen as a very serious sin to take salvation into your own hands, basically to take control of the outcome. And why is that? Well, because God is the God of salvation, not because he's offering salvation, because he's the one who's completing it. And so when you're trying to take salvation into your own hands, which is what the Armenian or free will position with salvation takes, essentially that's what it reduces to, even though probably most Armenians are going to reject that. But essentially, if you believe you can lose your salvation, if you believe that you entered into salvation because of a choice that you freely made, you're the one that it rests upon. Because if you can lose your salvation then you have to work to maintain your salvation. You see how that works? If God's doing the work, then you have eternal security. And so this is this is the, the big topic that we keep, you know, looking at from different perspectives. Today we're going to look at free will. But in the Old Testament, the attitudes we, we talked about last time, never mind the, the dozens and dozens of scriptures we, we showed where God's obviously the one predestining everything. But looking at the Old Testament attitudes, the people in the Old Testament, what do they think about free will? And, you know, predestination, making a choice to take things in your own hands kind of thing. It was a serious problem, right? We also looked at election and how history is essentially God's choices, not our choices. The book of the Bible is not about our choices. Our choices are secondary. And this is a very important thing. We'll we'll revisit a lot of these points that I'm making right now. So kind of, as usual, keep them on on the back burner. But we tend to read into scripture from our perspective, you know, as, as quote unquote free will beings. 
and think that that's how God operates. But history is not about our choices, humanity's choices. It's about God's choices. Our our choices throughout Scripture, and we'll get to some really cool examples, uh, are, are just setting precedence. God is teaching us by having these examples throughout history. It's not that God's responding to our choices, and, and we have this kind of tit-for-tat, two cooks in the kitchen type of thing. And that's really important because, as you'll see, if you believe that perspective, that it's kind of we're both choosing and, you know, it's kind of just this little dance that we're doing, then what does that say about God? Right? And that's a big one. So, you know, if we choose, if God chooses, you have eternal security. That's the whole point. If he chooses, you have an elect and he doesn't change his mind. He predestines things. He does things on infinite time scales. Then that what that means is eternal security. If we're the ones choosing, if we're getting into salvation, then we have no security. The gospel loses all power. Can you imagine if you if you went to a prison and you tried to evangelize some prisoners, said, you know, he told them the gospel about how we all sinned, fall on the shore of the glory of God, the world's going to be judged, but there's a way out. Good news. That's great news. But then you say, well, let me, hold on, there's a little asterisk there. And that asterisk is that you could lose your salvation. You know, you could, all that good news I just told you, put a big asterisk on that because you might lose that if you, you know, well, we don't know, right? That's the ultimate question that any Armenian can't answer. Well, at what point do I lose my salvation? What do I do that, that could lose my salvation? And so you li- that's even worse news now. You see how it robs the gospel of power? None of the early Christians believed that you could lose your salvation. They died and endured because they were eternally secure. Why? Because they understood the scriptures of God's sovereignty and his just control over everything. Like if he's chosen to reveal himself to you, you know, be blessed because most of the world, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, right? The other thing is in scripture, we are reminded the Holy Spirit convicts us believers of righteousness, right? And this is one thing I think that a lot of Armenians get in serious error with because you're not listening to the Holy Spirit. The job of the Holy Spirit, we talked one of the episodes, I believe it was the third episode in this series, so go check it out if you haven't listened to it. I think it's so important for any Christian because most Christians aren't well-educated on the Trinity. If you understand the Trinity you will understand why eternal security has to, it's the only logical and consistent explanation. Whereas whereas those who don't understand the Trinity, they have an inconsistent view of God. Excuse me. That darn voice, man, I'll tell you, it's a a marathon getting back to where I I used to be able to record two, you know, how many hours a week, just easily nothing. I was doing 10, 20 hours now. Now I'm getting there with God's grace, but got to cough every now and then. Um, when we are believers and we're regenerated, we have the Holy Spirit, which convicts us of righteousness. Okay, so what does that mean? That means that usually convict is like a you know like a sin or, or we think of something bad, but convicting is to make you believe, right? It's to to show you. Listen, you know you did this, right? Well, in, in our case, with convicting of righteousness, we're being convicted that, hey, like you're safe, you're saved, you're saved by the blood of Jesus. It's final, it's done. 
it is finished, right? It is finished. It's absolute. If you're a truly born-again believer, you're dead to sin. You, you don't come back from that. And that's that's really the point. Whereas a lot of these people who are talking about refuting, you're free, uh, refuting eternal security, there's no such thing as you, gotta, you, know, you can lose your salvation. They're just fear-mongering. They're not, that's not the Holy Spirit guiding you to do that. Because Scripture is clear that the Holy Spirit is convicting us of righteousness, reminding us, you know, it's the, it's the devil that tries to condemn you and try to, to tell you, oh, you know, you, you look at that, you did something, now God doesn't love you, you're not good enough, you're not going to make it. That's the devil. That's always been his job. It's to attack and to condemn. So why would we align ourselves with that if, if we're trying to teach and share the gospel with people? It doesn't make any sense. Another thing I want you to keep in mind as we go into this is that predestination goes hand in hand with omniscience. The God of Armenianism, now this is a bold claim, but it's, you know, I don't know any other way to say it. The God of Armenianism is a different God than the Bible. Now, no Armenian, especially anyone that's, you know, studying the Bible, but they claim to be an Armenian, will ever defend that. They'll say, no, of course not. But if you really look at it, omniscience goes hand in hand with predestination. If you have an omniscient God who knows everything, it stands to reason that they would make the best choices. Right? Wouldn't make the worst choices, wouldn't make mediocre choices, they would make the best choices. So if that's the case, and they make the best choices, and we see things like evil in the world, and we see and we know that God uses everything for the good, it stands to reason that all that stuff is intended to happen. Never mind all the scriptures that we're going to cover and that we have covered over and over again that show that God is behind everything that happens. And next week when we talk about evil, it's even more controversial issue, but it doesn't have to be controversial if you understand the scriptures and if you understand God's character. So what, what the opposite of that is, is open theism. Open theism is, and I'll pull this from Wikipedia, I'll just read it to you. Open theism, also known as openness theology, the openness of God and free will theism, is an attempt to explain the foreknowledge of God in relationship to the free will of man. The argument of open theism is essentially this. Human beings are truly free. If God absolutely knew the future, human beings could not truly be free. That's correct. Therefore, God does not know how... Here's the therefore. Here's the big red flag. Therefore, God does not know absolutely everything about the future. Open theism holds that the future is not knowable. Really. Therefore, God knows everything that can be known, but he doesn't know the future. So he doesn't know everything that can be known. See how inconsistent this is? Open theism bases these beliefs on scripture passages which describe God, quote-unquote, changing his mind, or, quote-unquote, being surprised, or, quote-unquote, seeing to gain knowledge. Like, when, a good example is like when Genesis, uh, you know, he's like, I regret creating man, right? So that seems like, God's just, you know, oh, he's he's kind of like us. I mean, he's, you know, he's eternal, but he he's like us. He's responding to things and he's kind of changing his mind. He must not know the future. That's the God of open theism. And as you'll see, hopefully, as I'll demonstrate and, and show throughout all of these episodes, but especially this one and the next one, that's a different God. They're, they're creating a different God because that's the only God that works with free will. The kind of free will that, that we have is not the kind of free will that God has. But Armenianism 
and open theists want to cling so hard to the kind of free will that God has in the sense that we have that too, that we are free from any influence. We can just make free choices. And then, of course, that creates a, a really you know conundrum, a philosophical conundrum, because it's not consistent with Scripture. So now you have to kind of you know, wiggle your way and do philosophical or biblical gymnastics to justify your false sense of free will rather than fixing your false sense of free will and then seeing God rightly. The big problem with that is that they read into verses like uh, Numbers 23, 19, which I'll pull it up right here. And, you know, they read into things and they read into scripture a free will type of perspective, right? So where, where it says that God regretted changing man, uh, creating man in Genesis 6, well, he must have regret, just like we have regret, and he kind of changes his mind. But look at Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Right? So it's pretty clear. God doesn't change his mind. I'm, I'm sure there's actually... I can recall, I don't remember the exact verses right now, but I didn't note them down, but there's plenty of other verses where it's very clear, God doesn't change his mind. I do not change my mind. I do not change. There is no darkness in God. There's no duality. There's no change. He's unchanging. How much more clear could he get? He doesn't change his mind. So then what what does that mean? Well, that means when you're reading these verses where it seems like God is kind of being human and you know changing his mind or responding or, or kind of allowing man to sort of sway him one way or another, like that means you're reading your faulty perspective into that situation. Okay. And we'll, we'll hint on this more and more as we go, but let's look at some other problems with this. If evil isn't God's responsibility. And again, we'll, we'll evil and all that stuff we'll talk about next week. Cause that's a whole other can of worms, but this is what it brings up with open theism. If evil isn't God's responsibility, if he didn't take responsibility for it and, and he didn't create it, he didn't intend for it to be in this limited time space of our history before the eternal existence we'll have. If that wasn't the case, then evil's meaningless. The things that happen in the world that are evil, they're meaningless. God, if God didn't intend them to happen and they're just kind of happening, then what does that say about God? First off, it says the evil's meaningless. And that's even worse because then there is no inherent purpose to everything that happens. That's evil. And even worse, it means that God is incompetent in some way if it's happening on his watch. Do you see how that works? If you have an open theism view of God, where God doesn't know the future, and he's kind of just this million-armed octopus that's reacting in such a way to work everything for the good, but evil's still happening, well, that means that he's incompetent in preventing evil from happening. Do you see how just that reduces the nature of God? It's, it's totally unbiblical. It does nonsense. But that's, here's the thing, that's the only compatible view with free will theism, with the idea that, you know, you choose, you, you can lose your salvation because of free will and you can get into salvation because of free will. Arminianism, basically. Those are the only compatible things. You can't have a sovereign God, at least the way the Bible describes him, <laughs> that's sovereign over everything, including evil, that you know, that, that it leaves room for your free will to, to sort of impact his plans. It doesn't work that way. And so you have a, a lot of inconsistencies in these positions. 
It's just, it's like having two cooks in the kitchen. I mentioned this before, but it's like having two cooks in the kitchen. You know, when, and the reason is, here's the reason, because we take God's free will. God truly is free. He has no influence. He's outside of time and space. And we supplant it or transpose it on ourselves. We assume that that's our free will too. And that's where you get the problem. You get these two conflicting wills, basically, and you're trying to make all this philosophy and theology to make it work, but it doesn't work. It's completely inconsistent. But how, so how does, what does that mean then for our free will, right? So that's our discussion today. What does that mean for our free will? How does that work with predestination? How does free will, what, what does that even mean for us? Well, here's a couple things to think about before we jump into this, because we're going to go through some, hopefully some eye-opening things. And again, my hope out of all of this, at first it's going to sound like doom and gloom. It really isn't. My hope is that you actually find power and encouragement through this content. But first consider this. What about Christ? He's the one that we're being conformed to, right? In Christianity, we call it the hypostatic union, which is just a fancy theological term for God is 100%, Jesus was 100% God and 100% human. So he has this union of these two natures, right? There's the human nature and there's the God nature, and they're unified. How does that work? Where's the line between those two? We don't know. Christ was completely uh, submissive to the Father's will while he was here incarnated on earth. So if we're being conformed to that image, do you really think that there's any room for our will to be done in anything? even in things like suffering and evil. Do you remember the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where Christ said, not my will be done, but yours, Father? So if we're being conformed to that image where the only the Father's will, only God's will is being done through us, you got to keep that in mind. Next one is the Trinity. We talked about this in episode three. You have the Spirit sanctifying you Convicting you of righteousness, guiding you, interceding for you, helping you pray. The Father's drawing you, choosing you, predestining you. And there's scripture behind all these guys. The Son, he's, you know, he died for us. He atoned for us perfectly from the ultimate sacrifice. He's interceding for us in heaven, right? He keeps what the Father's given him. I mean, you have all this action from three persons of the Trinity. And somehow you can cancel that? I don't think so. But then the question is, where do you draw the line? Well, I don't know. We don't know where, the, where we draw the line. You know, let's, here's a good one. In 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now listen to this. I love this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me has was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Okay, so this is again one of those things where where is the line between us, what, what we do, right, and what God's doing? And we don't know. That's a mystery. And thank God it's a mystery. What about the writers of the Bible and the Holy Spirit? Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. At least, you know, that's one camp, and I, I think there's a lot of evidence for it. But regardless, let's say whoever, Paul, he wrote Corinthians, right? 
where do we draw the line between Paul as an individual and the Holy Spirit working through Paul to give him perfect knowledge and, you know, guide his words? Where do we draw the line? We don't know. It's a mystery. Paul was definitely Paul. He's not like an inanimate puppet. But at the same time, he was being guided and driven by the Holy Spirit. There, he couldn't have done, he couldn't have resisted the Holy Spirit like guiding him to write Corinthians. That wasn't something he resisted. But you see, open theism and Arminianism, according to them, the Damascus Road experience could have never happened. Paul could have seen Jesus, right? He could have seen the vision of Jesus and had that Damascus Road experience that we now use as a, uh, you know, as a term, like a, uh, I forget the word for it right now, but like a saying, right? I had a Damascus Road experience. It was such a big deal. But according to open theism and free will theology, he could have, after having that, he could have, well, I don't know, and turned away. See, this is the problem. It's it's not irresistible grace. You're basically, there's another hit that you're taking against God, which is it's not irresistible grace. Irresistible grace says God's going to show you grace. There's nothing you can do about it. He's doing the work, right? But if you have sort of this offering of grace, but you still have to do something about it, now that means you can also reject God even when he shows up to you like that and, and chooses you for a purpose. That doesn't, that doesn't jive with Scripture. What about the temple of the Holy Spirit? That's another one, right? Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We get the Holy Spirit. Where's the, where's the line between that dance? I don't know. And, and we could go on with these, but the question is this. Do you acknowledge it as a mystery, or do you try to draw a line somewhere? People who believe and teach and see what you know scripture says about predestination acknowledge that it's a mystery we don't know i don't know i don't know where that line is drawn right but but at the same time i'm not going to draw the line because i know that as soon as i draw the line and say this is where the line is between me and god between my individuality and free will and then god doing his thing as soon as you do that you put god in a box and that's what Armenians do. That's what free will theism does, as you clearly, hopefully have seen with open theism, right? God is doesn't know the future. God is kind of reacting to things and just getting them in order just in time. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is completely sovereign. You know, another thing you want to consider is a lot of these religions today, some of them are older, right? Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Latter-day Saints, all the religions, and this is not just in Christianity, but you look at Hinduism, Islam, all the religions that are works-based, that have a works-based gospel, they are Armenian. They're not predestination, sovereign election. They're not about that. They're about Armenianism. Fundamentally, they are about you needing to do something, right? It's this idea of prevenient grace. Now, prevenient grace is a bit of a misnomer because prevenient just means to come before from Latin, prevene. And prevenient grace just means that God's grace comes before our actions, right? Which should be the way we should think about it as irresistible grace, meaning that when God shows you grace, 
There's nothing you can do about it. That's the whole point. It's to his glory that he can take somebody who's desperately wicked and transform their heart like Paul, Damascus Road experience, into you know one of the most famous apostles and evangelists. So prevenient grace, though, when, when it's used today, it's more in terms of Arminianism and this idea that it's there's kind of this potential, right? There's grace out there that we can activate with our free will. And that's, you know, again, it sounds good maybe on the surface, but if you really play it out, it, it brings a lot of problems to your theology. It robs God from glory because if you're doing something, you get the credit, right? Again, if I go to a Harvard prestigious school and I they, they offer me a scholarship, but then, you know, I'm the one who took the tests and, you know, got in. Who gets the credit for from graduating? Let's put it that way. I get the credit. Nobody's going to say, gosh, you know, Harvard gave him a sponsorship and all the glory to Harvard. No, the glory goes to you because you graduated. Even though Harvard offered you a scholarship. Well, now, you know, obviously that's a flawed example to some degree, but it's the same way with grace. If God is offering you grace, but it's you, you're the one, man, you had that, mm, you had that faith gene, man. You had something special about you that all those billions of people who are in hell, they didn't have, and you just out faith them. Well, guess who gets the glory from that? You do. It doesn't, it doesn't give God the glory that you work for your salvation, that you maintained your salvation. God is doing the work through and through to save you, to keep you, and to create the future. It also is an inconsistent position in terms of the Trinity. We talked about that in episode three. If Christ died for everybody to give everybody this sort of prevenient grace, this this potential grace that they can access, that is in clear contradiction to the many times where it says the Father elected people and gave them to Christ and that the Spirit sealed those people. Okay, so what does that mean? That means that Christ decided to die more from who the Father chose and the Spirit sealed? Why is there discord in the Trinity? doesn't make sense. And if you really understand the Trinity, that's why I did a whole episode on that, you'll see why this is nonsense. Now, last but, le- not, last but not least, believing in this false doctrine, essentially, there's a danger that you could drift into a works-based mentality, that you're not trusting God for your salvation. Remember last episode, we talked about how there was a serious sin. David and Moses and Saul... The Hebrews definitely believed that you had to trust God completely. There wasn't this sense of like, I need to do my part. No, you trusted God completely. Doesn't mean you didn't do anything. It just means you had trust completely. But let me put it to you this way. If you believe you can lose your salvation and you believe you have to work to maintain your salvation, are you trusting God completely? The answer is no, it's not. You're not trusting God completely. So that's why it leads you into a works-based mentality. And again, all the works-based Christian denominations, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, Mormons, JWs, all the other pagan religions, it's all works-based. And it's all Armenian. It's all you get to do something. You have to do something. Now, do we have an experience? Yes, we do. We make choices. We go moment by moment. Life is a surprise. 
Do we have an identity? Do we have a self? Yes, we do. I have a name. You have a name. We, you know, we don't know the future. Everything comes to us moment by moment. That is true. But does that mean we're free to choose without influence? No. The answer is no. I'm going to prove it to you. I hope I can prove it to you. And I hope more than that, that I can prove it, prove to you that it doesn't matter, that it's actually better this way, that it's actually more beautiful this way, to, to, to be in that mystery of where is the line and yet to never know it. So I want you to consider a few things. We're just going to go through these things. I think these are interesting. Uh, this first one I got from my book that I wrote on health and nutrition, but there's a section where I was talking about how often our bodies regenerate things. And I want you to just keep in mind couple things. So first one's every week you get a new stomach. Every three weeks you get new lungs. Every three days you get a new colon. Every two weeks you get a brand new set of skin. Every four months you get new blood. Every 10 years you get a new skeleton. Every 10 days you, well actually every day you get a new heart. I didn't know that. <laughs> every five months you get a new liver. Every 10 days, you get new platelets and new taste buds as well. You have an average of 100,000 beats per day of your heart rate. And your kidneys filter 200 liters of fluid every 24 hours. Now, all of that, we're going to keep going for a second, but all of that is happening without your control. None of that is happening under your conscious direction. Just just. Try to fathom all that activity and how it's just happening to you. This very moment as you're listening to this, as you're watching me, as you're doing whatever, you're walking, driving, you are constantly kind of unfolding, right? None of that is under your attention or control. If you stretch out your DNA strands in each of your cells and put them end to end, the resulting microscopic chain would be about 18 billion kilometers long. I can't even fathom that, but that's how much information we have. One gram of DNA holds 700 terabytes of data. That's about putting a football field worth of hard drives at today's, who knows, that might change in a few years, but a football field full of hard drives is in one gram of our DNA. And we don't even know most of what DNA does. And yet we think we're still free and making Free will choices. The surface area of your intestines is about half the size of a badminton court, which is about 400 square feet. And if all your blood vessels were laid out on a line, they would stretch out to about 60,000 miles. That's crazy. All of that is happening in your body right now without your control. Every second, about 600,000 new cells are born and you have 10 to 1 microbes to cells in your body. You have trillions of microbes just doing their thing without you telling them what to do. And guess what? Those microbes influence how you feel, how you think, what your mood is, what you think about. There's so much research on the gut microbiome and how it's directly connected to the vagus nerve. And, you know, it's sending signals for cravings, for thoughts. It creates neurotransmitters, which regulate your mood, your depression. So think, think about this really seriously. And again, the the ending message of this is good. It's a good one. 
but just stay with me. Every day you create and recycle approximately your entire body weight in ATP, which is the molecule for energy. So if this was if this process was any less efficient, you would die. We're talking like fractions die. Same thing with your blood. Your blood is pH of 7.14. And if it goes to 7.35, 7.3, you could have serious problems or die or above that. So your body's regulating these things and keeping them constantly as you eat, as you exercise, so that you don't die. All automatically. You're not doing any of that. Nothing important is our responsibility. I'll leave you with this one. Breathing. Breathing is probably the best example of of this ongoing conversation of where is the line. Well, as you're standing here, you're breathing. I'm talking, I'm breathing, my heart's beating. Am I telling myself to beat my heart? No. It's just doing it. Can I influence my heartbeat? Yes, I can, but I can't stop my heart. And I can't make it go, you know, 500 beats per minute. God forbid. (laughs) Right? We can't do that consciously. We can play with it. We can change our breathing, but we we can't say no more breathing. Or we don't have to think, oh, let me breathe again. All that is automatic. It's being done to us. It's happening. We have an experience that's happening. Here's a cool study from an article titled Unconscious Decisions in the Brain. This is in Nature Neuroscience, uh, April 13th, 2008, at the Max Planck Institute. I'll just read it, kind of the abstract for you. But already, already several seconds before we consciously make a decision, its outcome can be predicted from unconscious activity in the brain. This is shown in a study by scientists from the Max Planck Institute for Human Cognitive and Brain Sciences in Leipzig in collaboration with the Charité University Hospital and the Bernstein Center for Computational Neuroscience in Berlin. The researchers from the group of Professor John Dylan Haynes used a brain scanner to investigate what happens in the human brain just before a decision is made. Many processes in the brain occur automatically and without involvement of our consciousness. This prevents our mind from being overloaded by simple routine tasks. But when it comes to the decisions, we tend to assume they are made by our conscious mind. This is questioned by our current findings. This was in 2008, 12 years ago. There's a lot of research like this. I just decided to highlight it for you. But all these things that happen to us, most of them are automatic. And there's there's a whole study of heuristics, actually a book that I really enjoy, I highly recommend, called On Second Thought by Ray Herbert. Uh, It's a fantastic book. He covers so many examples of various heuristics. Heuristics is a psychology term for processes in the brain that help to to minimize energy, energy usage, right? So the brain has little shortcuts that little, think of them like automatic programs, right? Triggers that are working constantly to help our brain process information so that it doesn't get overloaded so that it's not conscious, right? So that I'm not attentively thinking about every little thing. In fact, that right there is the proof that our decisions aren't free because so many things factor into a decision that are automatic that we can only really realize them after the fact, right? So, you know, think about this one, a couple of these heuristics that he covers in the book and and they're just common heuristics, but we're wired for pleasure and to avoid pain. That's just a wiring that we have. You can't avoid it. 
Now, you can train yourself to have different rewards, but ultimately, we are rewarded by things that are pleasurable, and we seek to avoid painful things. Those factor into our decisions. We have selective attention. This is something where you you start paying attention to something more than other things just because that thing seems important to you. For example, when I started growing out my facial hair, (laughs) I started noticing a lot of dudes with beards. Do those dudes, did I manifest those dudes with the law of attraction? No, they've always been there, but I started paying attention to that. Subconsciously, I started noticing them because I started shaving and that became more important, or started not shaving, like kind of trimming my beard. So that became more important. This is called selective attention and we, we have it all the time. Negative bias. That's another one. We, pretend, we tend to prefer like the news. Let's put it that way. Why is the news in business? Why is fake news in business? Because people prefer, or I should say prioritize, things that are negative. Those are more important. What could kill you is more important than, you know, finding a few berries in the next bush, right? So ultimately, I don't mean to say that I believe in evolution, but I'm just saying it's an instinct that's in us that we tend to prioritize the things that are dangerous and immediately concerning over the things that could be potentially rewarding. Even though we are wired for pleasure and to avoid pain, the subset of that is the avoiding pain is a much stronger mechanic. That's why people, that's why this whole world is based on fear. It's all about avoiding pain and death. But that factors into your decisions. Confirmation bias. What is confirmation bias? Confirmation bias is when you're looking for confirmation of your presupposed beliefs. We look for things that confirm our beliefs and ignore the things that do not. Because we don't like cognitive dissonance. That's the next one. Cognitive dissonance is what happens when you're introduced with something that is against what you believe. And now your brain's kind of holding these two opposing beliefs. And that's uncomfortable. Our brains are wired for resonance, for for having consistency and, and unity in thought. And we don't like the feeling of having disunity. Now, the better thinker you are, the more you can hold those two positions and kind of wrestle with them. But most people don't like that feeling, so they gravitate to what's comfortable. That's influencing our decisions. Now, another one is comparisons, comparing apples to oranges, comparing ourselves to other people. We constantly compare things. That influences our choices. You know, we tend to look at ourselves in a better light, and we tend to see other people in a negative light. We tend to evaluate ourselves higher than we should, right? Our successes tend to be magnified. Our failures tend to be minimized. And that plays right into the whole free will gospel, which is, Free will is is all about you. That's free will speaking. That's the illusion that's talking, which is we have this power to choose because if you can choose, you can choose the good. And if you can choose the good, then you can save yourself. That's the way it goes. Now, another one is habituation. And I'll leave you with that one because there's so many of these. But habituation is, is basically desensitization. It is getting desensitized to something. When you're exposed to a stimulus, let's say I'm eating chocolate. I love chocolate, dark chocolate. Well, first bite's going to taste great, right? But then if you keep eating that chocolate by the, you know, however many bites you take, by the last one doesn't taste the same. That's because everything gets desensitized. And what does that mean for us? Well, we get desensitized. We don't get the same reaction anymore. And so we 
look for more stimulation somewhere else. Or we get more, we try to load up on more to get that same feeling again. Was I in control of that decision or was my desensitization influencing that decision? Right? That's that's what you got to think in mind. All these things are constantly working. There's so many heuristics. I don't even know how many there are, but those are some of the main ones. You know, it's 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 an illusion. All this is, the mind is playing tricks on us. And the more research comes out, the more this libertarian free will has been chipped away at and, and good. I'm glad it has because it ultimately hopefully re- returns us to a proper seeing of ourselves in relationship to God. We are made as vessels. You know, we talked about last time in this, this example of a coin flipping and with probability, right? It seems that when you flip a coin, the probability of it landing on tails, heads, whatever is one and two, right? 50, 50. But that's a mathematical conjecture. That's, that's a, a math model. It's not reality. If you actually were to take an experiment and test everything, the air density, the pressure of your, you know, thumb pushing on the the quarter, everything, you would eventually go from 50-50 to 100% of one side or the other. You would be able to control all the variables. Now, I don't think you could make such an experiment because we can't possibly have control over every single variable. But nonetheless, you could probably influence that probability to close to 100% by knowing all these different factors. And so you have probability, which is sort of this workable model that seems to work, you know, over the long term. But in the present moment, you have reality, which has been predetermined, right? So probability is a math model that we've taken from observing reality that kind of works. It works good enough. Let's put it that way. But in reality, the coin was never under probability. It was under all these factors contributing to it, and it just happened to be that side or the other. And over time, it kind of evens out because that's the general general way that it works. General, general is not a word, but general way that it works. But here's another example for you that you can play with your mind. Let's think about a busy marketplace. Okay, and this is going to transition well into some other things. But let's think about a busy marketplace. People are walking around, running around. If you're at the level of the marketplace, it seems pretty chaotic, doesn't it? It seems, you know, it's crazy. You feel like you might get robbed, whatever. Like, you don't know where you're going. It's confusing. It's all over the place. But if you were to hover above that level with a drone, with a plane, whatever, and you're looking down, you would see how organized and serene and quiet everything is. And if you keep going up and up and up and up, everything just seems so quiet, right? You ever just zoom out from like using Google Maps or something? You go all the way down. It's like, man, this is just crazy. Like at my level of perception, reality is chaotic. It, it seems chaotic. Let's put it that way. But as you go up several levels above that level of perception, it's not chaotic anymore. It's pretty peaceful. Everything's very organized. If you ever looked at blunder, blood under a microscope, you would, I've done that plenty of times for all my nutrition stuff that I used to do. They don't really do it anymore these days, but 15 years ago, you know, looking under your microscope, look at, at your blood under a microscope was a big deal. That was a common thing to do for metabolic analysis. And you would see, I mean, it looks like a war zone. You know, it's all kinds like cells are moving around. There's, bugs, there's critters, there's, you know, crystals, all kinds of crazy stuff in your blood. 
but then you look at your hand, you know, and you're like, oh, okay, there's order, there's a structure, it's, it's unified. So this is the illusion. This is the illusion of the local perspective. That's what I call it. I don't know if that's a technical term, but it's the illusion of our limited perspective. At every level where there's a local perspective, right, from that cell's level, all the other cells around it, it's a total war zone. But from my level, as the observer much higher, many orders higher, I'm looking at my hand and it's, it's pretty calm. It's, it's, there's nothing going on. Same with the marketplace. At the marketplace level, our individual level, we are, it feels really chaotic. It feels, you know, nerve wracking to go through a busy marketplace. But if you're like flying over that city, do you even notice that marketplace? No, everything seems very calm, very orderly, or all the streets are, it's like a little microchip. So this is the great conundrum, which is the illusion of the local perspective. And we have to remember Isaiah 40, 20, 20, uh, Isaiah 40, 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. So God's perspective, we got to remember that. We got to remember that God sits, to him, he does all that he pleases. It's all peace. He's predestined it. He's sovereign. There's nothing that surprises him. Even in places where it seems like he's regretting creating us or he's changing his mind, that's not what's going on. That's not what's going on. We'll look at a couple of those examples. But I want you to see that what God looks at, this is why I say when we read scripture and we read these things, we have to read it from his perspective. Even though we can't really transpose ourselves there, we can try and imagine because the physical world helps us imagine. And when you look from you know, 5,000 feet down, you don't care about that marketplace. Everything is pretty serene. That's what we have to remind ourselves because when you're looking at it from the marketplace view, it's, it's very easy to, to mess up your theology and your idea of God with open theism and Arminianism and all these things we've been covering. Because look, if you're free, if you're free from making any choices from any influence, if free to do that, that means that it's up to you to make the choice because you're free to choose the good. It's this whole idea of, you know, you have the power. You have the power. It's up to you. You can be like God, right? Genesis, you know, what was it, three? So, you know, it's in the predestination view, you have total depravity where you cannot choose the good. We can't choose the good unless God intervenes and you know, we're the elect and he's basically helping us do that. All the good that comes out of us is directly from God and God's influence in our lives. But if you have partial depravity, which is, well, you know, we're depraved, but, you know, you can still, you're still able to make that choice somehow. That's not, that doesn't make sense with scripture. That doesn't make sense with anything. It doesn't make sense with the Trinity doesn't make sense with all the things we've been covering so far. That God is sovereign and that we are under not only just original sin, the propensity to do evil all the time, all the verses we talked about in, in Total Depravity in the first episode, but the things we just talked about, which is, you know, all these heuristics, all these mental programs, all the things that are happening automatically. Do you have control over anything significant? The answer is no, we don't. 
And that's a humbling thought. That's why that's why predestination upsets a lot of people because it's a, you can't take credit for anything. And it is the most consistent view with God because he gets all the glory. Amen. Matthew 7, verse 11. Here's a good one to keep in mind with all this stuff. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, this is a good way to remember. Like, atheists can do good, right? They can be kind to their children. But does that mean that they're choosing the good? There's a difference between instinctively doing things that you've been programmed to do, that even animals do. Like, if you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Duh, you're supposed to. That's how you've been programmed. That's your instinct as a mother and as a father. But you're still evil. <laughs> you see the point? You can't come to saving faith. You can't saving faith in Christ is totally different than the seemingly good things that we do out of instinct, out of our own programming. Atheists can do good. Again, they can do good to their children, but are they capable of coming to saving faith in Christ and acknowledging Christ as Lord in repenting of their own free will, of their own goodness? No, the answer is no. That kind of goodness is not instinctual at all. That's the whole point. Even through instinct, you know, you say even a blind squirrel gets a nut every now and then. Well, <laughs> even with our instinct, we can still do some good. Even animals can do good, right? But we cannot come to a saving relationship with God of our own selves. And that's that's the thing to keep in mind. You know, the law of attraction, I haven't talked too much about this, but it is worth mentioning. The law of attraction, which is new age stuff, which is works-based, which is just like all the other works-based religions, it all falls on you. And as long as it falls on you, you can sell something. I want you to really think about this point. It's a really important point. If I tell you that it is up to you and you can make the choice and it's, you know, you can do it, I can always sell you something. I can sell you my next program. I can sell you my next package. I can sell you my idea. I can sell you my church. I can sell you my religion, whatever it is. And the thing is, it always comes back on you, never on me. You know, the law of attraction, all these people making money off law of attraction, and I was one of them for many years, but it's unfalsifiable. This is where the delusion is. At the end of the day, you can never blame the person who guided you, who you signed up for workshops with, because it's something that you didn't do. You see how that works? As long as it's up to your free will, well, you just didn't manifest enough. You didn't pray hard enough. You didn't do this. You didn't say this prayer hard enough. It always comes back to you. And so it's never falsifiable. You can never say, well, your program didn't work. Your religion didn't work. Your whatever didn't work. And this is why I believe that part of the deception in the garden was about free will. You know, Satan taught Adam and Eve, I believe, that's a whole other can of worms, but I believe that he imparted on them this, this illusion that you can be like God. You can know between good and evil. You can determine what's best for your life. You can choose 
You don't need to listen to God. And what, what was the consequence for that? Well, we're living it out. So the law of attraction, workspace gospels, all of it is tied to this idea of free will, as in the sense of us having free will like God. Do we have free will? Are we individuals? Yes. Do we do things? Yes. But we don't have free will in the traditional sense of being free to make a choice from nothing without any influences. That's impossible, as I've hopefully shown you so far. Now, a lot of people will object and say, well, if if we don't have control, then, you know, what's the point of life? Somehow that's unjust. And we'll get more into the unjust part next week with the episode on evil. But it's this whole idea of kind of like fate, right? But here's the thing. Fate and election, which is God's choice of to save people and to not save others, consequently, they're drastically different. Fate, which is what kind of a lot of you know pagan religions believe in and, and even New Age has notes of that. Fate is this idea that it's a mechanism of the universe that predetermines everything, but that's it. There's no purpose, right? So fate is just, oh, well, it was just fate. It just happened. There's nothing you could do about it. But election, which is what the Bible teaches, that God predestines everything, Election is the highest possible purpose. So this is what my, my point about having encouragement through this is. It doesn't matter that you're not in control. That's a good thing. The one in control is perfect and he's predestined everything for a perfect ending. Everything that's happening is the best possible way that it could happen. That's election. That's the highest possible purpose. It's not fate. Fate is like, well, there's all these negative things that are happening and there's nothing you can do about it, so what's the point of living? Well, that's not true because that's not what's happening. God has predestined everything to work for the highest possible outcome you can imagine. We can't even imagine it. In fact, the Bible says that. You know, we, we don't know where the line is drawn, but it doesn't matter. That's the point to take home for today. I think of it as, you know, this may be an obscured example for you, but... When I used to be competing professionally as a ballroom dancer, competing, you know, going to competitions, training students, all that stuff, working hours and hours every day, I worked with different coaches all across the country, and we would get choreography. The coach would give you, you'd pay an, an expert, somebody who's been doing choreography for 50 years, to give you good choreography, especially when you couldn't come up with, with one on your own. And the point is this. The coach gives you the choreography. You're still going to dance the choreography. But the coach knows what's going to fit your body the best and what's going to make you look the best. They're going to put together the moves for you, right? They're giving you the choreography and you're dancing it. And so ultimately, it's the same thing with us. It's like you're trying, you know, rejecting election is, or I should say predestination. Election and predestination are kind of the same thing. Election is about salvation. But Rejecting all of this in lieu of free will is essentially rejecting God's wisdom and plan for your life. That's why I think it's tied to the Garden of Eden because ultimately, look, to know the to know what's good and evil, it's a reference to, to knowing what's the best thing for your life, knowing that you can make the plan for your life. You don't need to listen to God's plan. That's why Arminianism, is, it's nonsense. It's really, it's truly nonsense. I hope more people see the truth. But it's very seductive. 
Again, anything that sells you free will, it has something to sell. Right? Roman Catholics, they have an institution to sell you. So do Eastern Orthodox. So do Mormons. So do JWs. Because it's all on you. And so you got to do this. You got to go through sacraments. Got to come to the church. And you have to do all these things. But if, if they were true and honest and aligned with scripture, they couldn't sell any of that stuff. Do you see how that works? If, if God has predestined everything and he's working in your life and he's taking care of it and he will be the one to finish the project, there's nothing you can do about it. Do you think that's compatible with 90% of the things they're doing and pushing their members to do? No, because that whole system runs on fear. It runs on the fear that they can lose their salvation. And as long as people are afraid of losing salvation, they're going to keep coming back for sacraments and prayers and this and that and all the route race of, of religion that people run in those spheres. Right? We're being conformed to Christ. Remember that. We're being conformed to Christ. He's the example. And if he lived a life of total submission, why are we thinking that we somehow are sovereign in an area that we have no control over? If you can't control your heartbeat, do you really think you can control something more important, which is salvation? It's food for thought. 2 Corinthians three seventeen. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Good words. Good words. You know, the law of liberty, the Ten Commandments, is called the law of liberty. Why? Because it sets us free. Freedom, true freedom, is not freedom in the way the world has convinced us that it is. Like God's freedom to do whatever you want. To be, You're free from nothing and you can just kind of come up with choices. Freedom is also not found in the things that we do or that we can do, like rights and privileges. That's not freedom. Freedom comes from surrender. It's a whole different way of thinking about freedom. Freedom is surrender. It's like when you have a bike. Bikes are meant to be ridden by riders, right? You have a bike. It doesn't just, it stands there. It's going to fall over. It needs a rider to ride it. We are the bike. We're nothing. We're vessels. We're meant to be used by God. God's the rider. He moves us. Where is the line drawn? I don't know. But there is that dance, right? And it's better that we don't know. It's for our own good, <laughs> right? We'd probably go crazy if we knew, or if I don't even think we could know, but there is freedom, but freedom is found in surrender. Freedom is found in obedience. It's not in doing our own thing or choosing like God chooses. Okay, so now let's get to some good stuff. How do we reconcile free will versus these verses throughout the Bible, and there's many of them, I'm not going to do that many today, but there are some good ones that will hopefully give you context for the rest of other things that you may come across. Like Deuteronomy 30, 19. Let's start with that one. Pretty common one. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. There you go. There's free will. You got to choose. It's all up to us. <laughs> so again, back to the beginning of this episode. Do not read your own flawed perspective into this, but rather read it from the perspective of God who's sitting up 
above everything and watching it without any concern. When Jesus said, follow me to the apostles, he wasn't hoping that they would say yes. He wasn't hoping that their free will would, you know, do the right thing. When he said, follow me, it was a prophecy. It was creating reality. He was declaring it. That's the God of the Bible. So when he speaks in such a way, like he says, choose life, and it seems that he's presenting choices. It's all up to us. Gosh, thank you, God. We have such a power now that we can choose. It's not what it's about. First off, Deuteronomy 30, 30, he's speaking to the elect, right? Now, there's also unelect in the audience who don't care and who are going to be made an example of, and they will be killed. They'll be destroyed. But the elect, he's speaking to them. He's prophesying. He's declaring. He's encouraging them. Choose life, meaning you will choose life, and reminding them. Even though he's holding their hand, he's reminding them. There's that duality of we have an individuality and then there's God that's sovereign. There's a mystery of how that works together. But it's not, here you go, guys. It's all up to you. You better make the right choice. Nobody would make the right choice. Nobody would make the right choice. Genesis 4, 6 through 15 with Cain. Now, this is a classic example, and there's so much we could talk about this, but verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were out in the field, Cain rose against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me shall kill me. Then the Lord said, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. First thing we have to realize is that Cain wasn't repentant, right? God said, hey, you killed your brother. He said, oh, you know, but now I'm going to get killed. Instead of saying, I'm so sorry, you're right, I made a mistake. So he wasn't repentant. Why? Because Cain wasn't elect. His whole lineage was reprobate. Why is that? Well, first off, Adam and Eve had multiple sons and daughters, not just Seth and Cain. But God is using Cain's lineage and Seth's lineage as a compare and contrast. We've talked about this ad nauseum with parables of the wheat and the tares, the elect, the reprobate. We talked about total depravity. We're, talk- we're going to talk about more about it next week when we talk about um, evil and predestiny evil. There are people who are not saved, and there are people who are saved. We don't know who those are. It's not up to us to know. It's for us to declare the gospel. But we, we can look in history, and, and certain things are very clear, right? Like Cain wasn't saved. He, wasn't, he didn't ever care about being saved. He cared about himself. He wasn't repentant. He just cared about himself. 
And God is using the example of Cain that even if he were to offer him the choice, but God didn't show him grace, irresistible grace, meaning to change his heart from the inside out, that it was impossible for Cain to make the choice. Do you see what I mean? God offered him the choice. He said, even if you do well, won't you be accepted? Like, hey, here's the choice. But you're not going to make it, and I know that you're not going to make it because I haven't chosen to save you. And that's my point to the rest of history, that if I don't do the work in your life, you cannot make the right choice. That's what that, that's what that whole story is saying. It's not teaching us that, well, Cain just made the wrong choice, gosh darn it. No. Adam had many sons and daughters. It's showing a precedent. And there's other things too it's showing. There's a typology there between Abel and Christ. And, you know, it's, it's, that's a whole other study. It's super fascinating. But God is setting precedence through the things that he does. He's not responding to history. You got to get that view out of your head. We respond to things. We're in that busy marketplace responding to people around us. God's, you know, 10,000 feet above. He doesn't respond to anything. He, he is. Right? Let's look at another one. 2 Chronicles 33, uh, verse 10. So this is about Manasseh's repentance. And Manasseh was a king in Israel who, who was, at first he, he was really bad. He was doing a lot of naughty things with sacrifices and idols and things. But he came to repentance. And let's see what happens. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Ouch. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Wait, wait, wait. God was moved by his entreaty? Now here's here's an interesting point. If we look at the King James Version, verse 13, and prayed unto him, and he was entreated of him, and heard his supplication. So he was entreated of him, and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem, versus ESV, which most of the time is good, but sometimes, you know, when you when you see these kind of things that are like, whoa, wait a minute, it's usually a translation issue. These people are translating something into it, that a meaning that doesn't exist. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entry. Like, God was so moved that he responded to mankind. Really? Do you think do you think that's what's going on here based on everything we've covered and all the other things we've looked at or is something else going on? No, God God saved Manasseh as an example. Gave him showed him grace, allowed him to repent. Manasseh went through the process of praying and and executing that grace because his he was moved to repent. And God received his repentance. That's what that's showing. When people, when translators, who most of them are Armenian, most of the time when these words come up, that's that's an Armenian free will perspective being read into that verse. 
Because what it really is saying, if you read that verse, and God was moved, as if God is responding to mankind. God does not respond to mankind. That's This is not the correct view of God. God does. We respond. But ultimately, God's still in control. And again, where is that line? We don't know. But God does not respond to mankind in the sense that we can change God's mind. We can kind of flatter him. We can impress him. I mean, think about this. When Jesus was baptized, he said, the father said, behold, this is my son who I'm well pleased. That's Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can please God. Do you think you and I can somehow impress God and move him? Move, like move is such a strong word. To be moved by something is to be overcome with emotion. And to like, oh my gosh, do you think we can do that to God? I don't think so. I don't think so. So that's not what it can mean. God is showing something through this. And that's what we'll get to. But let's let's look at the next one, because the next one's really cool. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 12. So, <laughs> okay, I'll just read it and then we'll talk about it. Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it for you, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your, hand, in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me, which is the Lord. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on, the, on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. Now, this is, this is such a cool story. Now, first, let's, let's put this in context. So God is enacting judgment on Israel, and he sends Gad, who's a messenger, a prophet, to, to give David three choices. And the three choices are pestilence for three days, being away from your enemies for three months, <laughs> or three years of famine. Now, David says, I don't want to run away from man, but regarding the other two choices, let's just let me fall on God's mercy. Okay. So what's going on here? Is God saying, here, make the choice. Let's play Russian roulette, see what you get. No. First and foremost, God lets Satan incite David. If we look at 1 Chronicles 21, uh, a little bit later, obviously. But then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. This is about God's uh, letting Satan incite David to do a census. Now, we don't know why God was angry with Israel with this whole three choices thing, probably idolatry, who knows. But it's very clear that, you know, God's allowing things to happen so that he can prove a point. Okay. So whatever's happening here with the choice in 2 Samuel 24, it's justified, obviously. But what is what is happening with this choice is so fascinating. Because if you read free will into that saying, see, there you go, God gave us a choice. It's all about us. We gotta choose. Wrong. It's not. You gotta you gotta think of the big picture. You gotta remember, put yourself in 
the position of looking at the big picture where God's sitting. We can't do that, but we can try. It's going to give us more clarity. God, from a position of God predestining and ordaining things, do you not think that he knew David would not want to be pursued by his enemies? That would be like the most unfavorable thing. So he gave them three choices. He knew David was going to take out the middle one because he doesn't want to be pursued by his enemies. I mean, David said, you knit me in my mother's womb. All my steps you knew before they were happening. So David knew that God predestines things. And of course God predestines things. So he gave him three options. One of them he knew David would reject. So now it leaves two. Three days of pestilence or three years of famine. And he also knew that David would fall on God's mercy. So God knew what he was going to do before he even offered these choices. So then why did he offer the choices? Well, it goes back to the same thing last episode we talked about lots. Why did why did they do lots if God already made the choice? Because it was about conditioning mankind to allow God to do the work, to let go of the outcome. In this case, God knew that David would fall on his mercy, and it was a chance to show that between the two options of three years of pestilence, or I'm sorry, three years of famine and three days of pestilence, God would choose the more merciful one. Because I bet you three years of famine, a lot more people than 70,000 would have died. Three years of famine. I don't know how many were in Israel at the time. There was a million. But considering all the other wars and things that were going on, there would have been a lot of people that would have died. So what's going on here? God already knew what was going to happen. He predestined all of this to happen to show that he's merciful. Listen, I'm going to have to punish you. And I know what you're going to choose. So I'm going to give you three options. You're not going to choose this one. Now it gives me the chance to choose which one. Who chose in the end? God chose. God chose the three pe- the three days of pestilence. And that was the more merciful option. So these types of situations, there's an obvious or immediate way to read them, which is, <gasps> it was a choice and it was David's choice and you know this kind of stuff. That's not the right way to read it. There's a more in-depth, nuanced view that requires you to really take in God's nature and understand scripture from the way that he does things. And when you can look at it that way, you start to see that there's a lot more going on. God is using scripture to create precedents, right, for things that are going to happen again in the future. So there's a precedent for it. So you understand God's nature and way of doing things, the way he does business. There's precedents throughout the Bible so that we understand God's nature. We don't, we'll never know God's mind, but that's exactly why he's done things with precedents so that we can understand his decision making process what's his sense of justice like what are the things that he's done in the past so that we can understand how he would act in the future at least by precedent right what's consistent that's what these situations are showing god is also decreeing things he's not like saying stuff and hoping that it happens he's not inviting but then oh you know i guess you can turn me down follow me guys well no i guess you're not going to follow me okay i'll go find somebody else that's not how it works When he says, follow me, he's creating reality. He is prophesying. He's God. He doesn't talk like we do. He created the world with his word. Do you think that when he speaks, it's 
just like empty speech like ours? No, of course not. Also, there's translation issues. When you come up in these these things like we talked about with uh, God being moved. <laughs> God is not moved. God is not moved by you or your prayers or anything that you do. If he's pleased by his son, that's about it, right? Like we can do our best to be in alignment with Christ, but he's not going to be impressed by what we do. Never. God, God doesn't get impressed, right? So ultimately, we have to read things from a different perspective. And God is also showing his qualities. God is showing his sense of justice, his mercy through these precedents. That's why he's ordaining them to happen. When you read scripture as his story, you read things from a totally different perspective. You see, you see these types of events as God is showing and telling and creating precedents and allowing us to understand who he is. We'll never understand fully, but showing us who he is. He's, he's showing. It's show and tell. It's all about God. It's not about, you know, David. It's not about his choices. It's about God revealing his qualities. The thing that happened with David was just one among countless examples that allows us to understand that, yes, God is merciful and God is in control and he's just. So, you know, I got to keep that stuff in mind. We got to remember all these things we talked about earlier with like the hypostatic union of Christ the you know the writers of the Bible, where does that line drawn? I don't know, but there. But the moment you draw a line, you put God in a box. You can't draw a line. That's the beauty and the mystery behind it. So now, what is the point of all of this? What is the point if if God's predetermined things? What is the point? What is the point? Like, why would He do that to David if He'd already predetermined it? Well, again, you're thinking like a human being. You gotta you gotta try to think from God's shoes, which again, it's. It's not possible, but we, we can try from the big picture perspective. God did not do those things willy-nilly. He's doing it to show something very important, to teach future generations, to teach everybody, to show a precedent. Everything that's being used during this time is being used to create precedents and justification and, and teachings to reveal God's nature. He's not doing it just to do it. And he's not responding to mankind. The other thing is, if you plan a party, would you not want to have a party? That's something to think about. So saying, what's the point if he's predetermined is like saying, what's the point of having a party if you've already planned it? <laughs> you got to have the party. The plan has to be fulfilled. He predestined things. He predestined everything. And it has to be fulfilled in time. Now it's being fulfilled. That's what the point is. Now, what about, well, if there's election and there's predestination, what's the point of the gospel? What's the point of spreading the gospel? Well, that's another good question. Well, first off, we don't know who is elect and who isn't. We don't. It's not our job to just say, well, they're not elect. I'm not going to preach the gospel to them. No, absolutely not. Or to say, you know, I'm the elect, so I'm much better. That's not at all where this is going. Being elect or not elect is not up to us to judge of other people. When we're told to proclaim the gospel, the word proclaim is used on purpose. You're proclaiming the gospel. You're saying it. 
You're not trying to convert people. You're not trying to sell them on anything. Because if they are elect, it'll it'll wake them up. It's like water on a seed. It'll wake them up. The Holy Spirit will convict them of sin and repent. And they'll be born again. Right? So that's that's how this works. If there is no election, and you know, everybody has to pick with their free will and they have to make a choice, then you do have to sell the gospel. Do you see how that works? If there's election, we we go into the world with a trust in the back of our mind that God will still save those who he's purposed to save. Nobody's going to be lost. Despite your crummy evangelizing effects, you know, I, I suck at you know, spreading the gospel. I'm not that good at it. And that's something I really want to improve in the next year with complete strangers. I'm getting, you know, I'm getting some practice, but it's hard. You know, I enjoy doing this kind of stuff because this is easy, but spreading the gospel is hard and it's something we have to practice. But is it something I'm worried about? Like if I mess something up with someone, do I have to now think that my free will cost that person their salvation? Do you see how that leads you to just a a powerless view of the gospel. At the end of the day, God is the one that's growing the seed. He's the one that's providing the sunshine. He's the one behind it all. We're just participating. We're going to proclaim it, proclaiming the gospel, sharing the gospel, sharing our testimony. And at the end of the day, you'll be one of many gardeners that are watering that plant. But it's God that provides the growth. So this is the thing. It's not up to us to know who's elect. We're just out to proclaim the gospel and to share our testimony. God will do the rest. We just have to surrender. That's where the freedom is. The freedom is found in surrender. You surrender to God's will and see where the Spirit is calling you. That's freedom. That's true free will. It's being in God's will. Whole different way of looking at things. So if God is doing the work, and he chose us from the beginning of time, and he doesn't change his mind, and he predestines things. What does that mean? That means eternal security. And I'm going to share with you several verses throughout the New Testament, and even Old Testament, that prove it to you, hopefully, right? We don't have free will in the matter. We never did. It was never part of the plan. We never will. Not in the matter of being saved or not. Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Does that mean you can lose your salvation? I don't think so. Romans eleven twenty nine. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Can you give him back after he's drawn you and called you and saved you and atoned for you and interceded for you? No. John 16, 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and is the Holy Spirit, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So there's a lot going on here, but the righteousness part is the one I want to focus on. We And also judgment too, in some sense. But we are convicted of righteousness by the Holy Spirit we are reminded that we are given a robe through our regeneration 
a robe of righteousness, that we are safe from God's judgment and condemnation. Hallelujah. You cannot lose your salvation. The Holy Spirit is convicting you of righteousness. And if he's not, that's something you need to look into because John is very clear about that. Now with judgment, the world is going to be judged. There's There's an end to this timeline. And that gives us hope. That gives us hope because we're going to have new bodies, eternal bodies, we'll be with Christ. And it's also, you know, it's a promise and a warning. The promise is the hope, but the warning is, hey, be prepared. You're invited to the wedding, but that doesn't mean you're not going to get dressed. You're still going to get prepared, right? When you go to a wedding, you're invited to the wedding. You're not trying to earn that invitation anymore. But when you're at the hotel getting ready, like you're going to make yourself look good and presentable because you care, right? So yeah, there's that duality of us doing things and there's eternal security, but where is the line? We don't know. It's certainly the line is not drawn where you can lose your salvation. That's not biblical at all. When Christ died, he had substituted that death for our death. It's called substitutionary atonement, meaning he paid the price for our sins. We deserve to be on that cross. And because he did that, he allowed us to die with him and be born again. Now, here's a question. If you die to sin, can you come back to sin? Can you come back to life and sin? No, you can't. Once you die, you die. The only resurrection is the resurrection of the body. You do not get resurrected to sin. That's what basically Armenian Armenianism allows the possibility for. That you can get unborn again, which is nonsense. It's total nonsense. Once you die to sin, and assuming again, if you have an original or an authentic rebirth, right? If you're born again, truly born again, you're dead to sin. Your sin is crucified on that cross. It's not coming back. It's dead. So, you know, Christ allowed the Holy Spirit to come into our lives, to come into us freely. That was not given out freely in the Old Testament. And Scripture is very clear that it's a guarantee. Look, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. And who also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. As a guarantee. Ephesians 1, 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, tell me honestly, if we get the Holy Spirit as a down payment from God, to prove that he's serious about his plan of salvation. We get that Holy Spirit for free as a down payment to his glory as a guarantee. Does that mean that you can reject that? That you can give him back the guarantee? That's what Arminianism teaches. It's total nonsense. And again, I don't understand why you'd want to teach that anyway. Why would you be so serious and so hell-bent, and I use that word on purpose, on teaching people that you could do that? That's not the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is that we can surrender to God, and he does the work through and through. John 5, 24. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, we'll get more into some of the challenge verses in a future episode. This is not talking about whoever is in anybody willy-nilly who hears God's word and just decides of their own selves to believe. That's not who he's talking about. He's talking about the people who end up believing. Why do you believe? Because God has shown you grace. So those people who end up believing because God has shown them grace will not come into judgment. The elect will not be condemned. You'll not be judged. You're righteous. You have eternal security. Doesn't mean you're perfect. It just means you're deemed righteous. It's black and white. Condemned versus righteous. If you're elect and God has chosen to give you a new heart, you are righteous. You're not going to come into condemnation ever. Got to remember that. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John 6, 37 is all you need. All that the Father gives to me, that's predestination, election, will come to me, means irresistible grace. And whoever comes to me, the elect, I will never cast out. Meaning, I'm. you can't do anything to screw this up. I don't know how much more literal you can get about the, with this. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 10 through 13. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. There we go again. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, here it is, we also live with him. If we endure, we also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself himself. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Who's going to deny him? Is it the elect? No. It's the unelect. It's the reprobate who will deny Christ. This, this passage, he's talking to him about two types of people. Always. It's always about two types of people. From Cain and Abel all the way through the New Testament. It's always about two types of people. The goats and the lambs. The wheats and the tares. It's always two types of people. Cain and Abel. The good seed, the bad seed. It just can't. There's no, (laughs) I don't know how many more we can do, right? If we endure, he will also reign with us. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Hey, those people who are going to deny him, he's going to deny them. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He can't deny himself. God doesn't change. Our hope doesn't put us to shame. Romans 5, 3 through 5, or Romans 5, Yeah, verse 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Remember when Paul was talking about how he worked harder than all the other apostles, but it wasn't I, it was the grace of God. The grace of God is transforming us. It's giving us the ability to 
to have the experience of endurance, to have a new life in Christ, to have the ability to persevere. And that hope that's been given to us is not going to put us to shame. Truly, it won't. Look at another one. John 10. John is full of good ones. John chapter 10, verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Look actually before that to verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice. Is that everybody in the world? No, it's his sheep. It's the sheep that he's been given by the Father. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Or they'll be snatched if they're too naughty after a period of time or they will fall out of my hand. They might fall out of my hand. No. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. Nobody will snatch them out of my hand. The Father gives them to me. I know my sheep. How much clearer can we get? And people still think that you can lose your salvation. Deuteronomy 4.31 For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. He's not going to leave you or destroy you. God has always had an elect, even in the Old Testament, the remnant. Everybody else was just to show his plan. Again, God is showing his plan and his ways of doing things and his ways of thinking through history by using both elect and unelect people. When he uses the unelect, it's to show his qualities of justice and wrath and power. That, of course, he's not going to show to the elect full on because he doesn't want to destroy them because he's given them to Christ. It all makes sense. <laughs> it's really quite simple. Remember the Trinity. You know, you, you cannot get away from the fact that the whole Trinity is doing, constantly doing things. When it comes to salvation, predestination, interceding for us. So if that's happening before time, during time, in the future, where is there room for us to, to break those plans? There is no room. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It's a prophecy that was fulfilled at Jesus' birth. What does Emmanuel mean? God is with us. God is with us. Yeshua's salvation. God saves. God is called God of salvation throughout the Old Testament. Now, do you think that all of these things, God is with us, God saves, God of salvation, do you think that people related to God in that way and that God revealed himself in that way because he offers salvation or because he completes it? Again, it's not consistent with Scripture. Scripture is very clear. God is the one in charge. God is the one that's completing it. God is with us, not with us hoping that you make the right choice. He's kind of there. He's in your corner. <laughs> He's in your corner cheering you on, hoping you'll make the right choice. No, God is with you. If you're elect, if he's chosen to reveal himself to you, he's with you in the sense of irresistibly with you. There's nothing you can do about it. That's the good news, man. That's the good news. 
you know, I want to talk really quick about eternal security versus assurance of salvation. Eternal security is obviously taught by the Bible. We have eternal security as believers, but a lot of believers don't have assurance of salvation. And this is when we are not embracing what we've been given full on. Again, there's that duality of God's given us this predestined plan, but we're living it out. And a lot of the verses where James is talking about, you know, working out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul is talking about running the race, don't be disqualified. These are about assurance of salvation, not eternal security. This is where a lot of the confusion is with some of the people that teach refuting eternal security. Assurance of salvation is your experience of the eternal gift that God's given you. Are you praying? Are you using your gifts? Are you spreading the gospel? Are you having fellowship with other believers? Are you reading scripture? Are you actively engaging in your faith? That's assurance of salvation. Right? It's not working for your salvation. It's not working to maintain your salvation. It's embracing what you've been given. You were bought for a price. You know, the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness. But there's there's a promise and a warning with everything, right? When, when he convicts the world of sin, back in, uh, what was it? John 16, 8. Let's look at that. And when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So there's a promise and warning with all these. For sin, it's for the unbelievers, or I should say the elect who are not yet, who haven't been regenerated yet. The promise is repent. (laughs) The warning is you'll get destroyed if you don't. Of course, none of the elect are going to get destroyed, but the warning is there to, to move you into the direction that you need to go. It's for the plan to be fulfilled. For righteousness, it's, hey, remember you're, you're righteous, you're saved. I'm going away, I'm going to go with the, be with the Father. The Spirit will remind you that everything's okay. <laughs> you're still, you're, you'll be fine, you're saved. But it's also going to convict you that you've been bought for a price because of that righteousness. Again, there's that, that kind of dualism, not dualism, but the, just two perspectives we have to keep in mind. Yes, you're righteous. But you were bought for a price, man. And when you remember that you're righteous because you were bought for a price, it motivates you to read your Bible. It motivates you to spread the gospel. It motivates you to give great gratitude to God, to pray, to observe the Sabbath. It motivates you because you're, you're bought for a price. But you're righteous. So you see, it's assurance of salvation is not working for your salvation. It's not maintaining your salvation because you might lose it. It's fully embracing what you've been given. The gift is there. You're eternally secure. But we have to work on creating that sense of experience with the gift. And that's where our free will or responsibility comes in. Where is the line between the Holy Spirit helping us to do those things? I don't know, man. But it's not up to us to draw the line. Because the moment you do, you limit God. It's impossible not to limit God when you draw the line. So one more thing I want to ask is, why pray if God is sovereign? 
right? If God is predestining everything, and why why do we pray? Why do we even bother praying? Well, first off, remember Christ prayed in garden in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will be done, but yours. So that, if anything, should be a model for our prayer. And if you look at Christ's ministry, every time he prayed, he gave thanks, right? He gave thanks to the Father. He glorified the Father. And so prayer is, I think most people pray these days to get something, especially if you're in the hyper-charismatic movement. Prayer has become a, a formula for manifesting. In Jesus' name, I call prosperity in your life, you know, these kind of stuff. And that's nonsense. I'm not even getting into that, but that's that's nonsense. That's just law of attraction repackaged as Christianity. When we pray, we are not praying to influence God. Remember, we don't have free will like he has free will. God is not responding to us. You can pray to ask him for things, but you're not going to change God's will. You know, you're not, you're also not going to get like some religions like Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy especially have this thing of like, well, if somebody really holy is praying, then God might answer your prayers. That's totally, to me, it's heretical. It's it's nonsense. God is not responding to people, okay? The reason we pray is to experience gratitude and communication with God. People could not pray to God anywhere they wanted to like we can today. Back in the Old Testament, (laughs) you had to sacrifice something. You had to be in a special place. God wasn't just going to listen to you or allow you to pray and have that communion with him. So first and foremost, praying is about experiencing God in this life. That's a shadow of of the fulfillment we're going to have when Christ comes down here to reign on earth and to fulfill his kingdom. That'll be complete communion with God. But until then, we get to experience God, to give gratitude. Many prayers go unanswered. So it's not about getting anything. Now, of course, you can ask. I ask all the time, God. I ask God for better sleep, for health, for my voice to be healed. Have some of those things happened? Yes. Have a lot of those things happened? No. It's it's a constant work in progress. That doesn't mean God isn't listening to you. doesn't mean God doesn't love you. doesn't mean anything. It just means that it's not up to us to like change God's mind or his will or rush his plans. It is about experiencing and practicing communication to God and our practicing our relationship to him. He's predestined it. He has given us the spirit to help us pray. And we are experiencing that plan unfold when we sit down to pray. How does that work with the present moment and it feels like it's a choice? Well, it's a mystery. <laughs> That's the beauty of it. So, look, at the end of the day, we don't have free will like we think we do. And I hope that this has helped you realize that that isn't a problem. That's not a problem. It doesn't matter that we don't have free will the way that we've been taught by the Enlightenment, by libertarian free will, by all of this humanist philosophy that puts the emphasis on man and man's choices. History is about God. It's about his choices, his plan of salvation, what he's done in history, and how we are experiencing that through our surrender. And if you allow God to work in your life, that means that God has already worked in your life, if that makes sense. 
You wouldn't be able to allow and surrender unless God has touched your heart and predestined it so. And if God is doing the work and he's predestined it, as the Bible is so clear, the Father gives to the Son, the Son keeps, the Son intercedes, the Spirit helps, all the stuff we talked about in the Trinity, third episode. What that means is you are eternally secure in your salvation. Now, does that mean you have a license to sin? Absolutely not, because if you're truly born again, you don't want to sin. You're dead to sin. Remember, the substitutionary atonement allowed us to die to sin spiritually, just like Christ died physically. It allowed us to die to sin. You don't come back from that. And the thing to really keep in mind is just assurance of salvation. That's where we have to take the reins and Run the road that's been set before you. It's there. You're saved. But, you know, go for it. You have a part to play. <laughs> How that works, who knows? But it doesn't matter because the end is the most perfect ending that could possibly be imagined beyond anything that we could do. If you had free will in the matter of salvation, you would not be saved. You could not plan a better plan than God. So thank God that everything is predestined. And next week, we're going to get into some really hot topics with evil and predestination of evil and reprobation, meaning God has left certain people to be damned. Now, that doesn't sit well with a lot of people, but the reason it doesn't sit well is because they're in their free will sense of things. They're in their pride. Free will is very oriented around the self. It's self-affirming. And... The God resists the proud. That's what the Bible says. The whole of Scripture resists pride. So that's why there's so much resistance to predestination, because it's the most humbling thing we can think of. We're not in control of anything. But remember from the beginning of this episode, you're not in control of anything important that happens in your life. How many crazy biological processes happen to keep you alive every single day? And you're not in control of any of them. So... With that, God bless. Hope you have a wonderful week ahead and give you some food for thought. We'll see you next week.